Hello, and welcome to A Class Half Full, a legal podcast which looks at the class action system in Australia. My name is Douglas Campbell, and I'm a silk generally based in Brisbane. My co-presenter is Blair Hall, another Brisbane-based barrister. In the last episode, I looked at potential problems with regard to opt-out notices, but I did this in a rather shotgun way by mainly looking at one specific case. It's interesting to see how an opt-out notice works in practice, but I also think it's necessary, dare I say from an academic point of view, to understand or at least think about a number of potential areas of concern. I've identified them as these. First, when should an opt-out notice be made? Second, what information goes into an opt-out notice? Third, who should get the opt-out notice? Fourth, what happens if there is conflicting information out there? Fifth, how is an opt-out notice brought to a group member's attention? And sixth, can you opt out after the election period has expired. I want to finish with opt-out notices this week, and so I'll make short comments about each of those. Although, of course, a number of them were dealt with in a more practical way last week. I've already mentioned that the time when an opt-out notice is to be given is not set out in the Federal Court of Australia Act or equivalent state legislation nor is anything mentioned in any of the current practice directions. Section 33J, subsection 4, requires, unless the court orders otherwise, the date fixed to opt out of the proceedings must be before the commencement of the hearing of the proceedings. So there doesn't appear to be any urgency with regard to opt out notices, unless you think of their purpose. The purpose of an opt-out notice is twofold. Under 33 capital X subsection 1 paragraph A, there is firstly a requirement to give group members notice of the commencement of the proceedings, and secondly, the right to opt out of proceedings. The two are normally amalgamated, but there's no reason why that should always be the case. So it's first necessary to think whether it is appropriate or beneficial for group members to be given notice of the commencement of proceedings separate to the opt-out notice. Certainly, when Section 33 capital X was first introduced, there was a clear belief that opt-out notices should be given at an early stage. In the practice note that predated the current practice note, it was called practice note number CM17, the timing and form of the opt-out notice was something which was required to be discussed at the initial case management hearing. That's not the case now. The change from that reflects the reality of the issue in class actions that they're often complex. And if a group member is to decide whether or not to opt out, such a decision can only be made when all the facts are taken into account. This does not mean that a group member must be told whether or not they're going to win or how much they're likely to get if they win, 
but rather like any litigation, a group member should know the nature of the claim and the risks that arise as are shown on the pleadings. There have been submissions made recently in a number of cases that opt-out notices should be deferred for a lengthy period of time. Justice Nichols, for one, described this as curious. Similarly, the same judge in the shareholders class action against Treasury Wine Estates urged the parties to progress on sending out opt-out notices quickly. This was done in circumstances where there was a wish to combine notification of the class action, an opt-out notice, and an ability to register as a group member in one document. All of this is probably sensible and commendable, but only really works if it is done within a relatively short period of time. Don't forget the group members may know nothing about the class action until they receive a copy of the opt-out notice. And so for that reason alone, an early-ish timetable for delivery of an opt-out notice is appropriate. Who should get an opt-out notice may seem a strange question. Of course, all group members get an opt-out notice. But the court retains flexibility. There may be valid reasons as to why a different notice should be given to different categories of group members. So we saw in Pearson, for example, a different notice was given to registered group members as opposed to those who were unregistered. The issue then becomes to some extent flexible, at least around the edges. With regard to what needs to go into an opt-out notice, I've attached on the webpage examples of a number of opt-out notices from past cases. Of course, the practice direction has a pro forma opt-out notice attached to it, which is very useful. You'll also find that if you look at the internet, there are lots available. But as can be seen from the opt-out notice in Pearson in the state of Queensland, the notice needs to be designed to meet the needs of the group members. Simplicity, clarity, and succinctness are important. It may be that, like in the Pearson case, if further information is required, it can be obtained by other means, say through the internet, or it could be provided on request. An opt-out notice can only do so much. It cannot give a group member all of the facts. But then litigation is always a bit of a lottery. Next, I want to talk about conflicting information. The courts are sensitive to the fact that information which conflicts with the opt-out notice may be given to group members, and that this can impact on a group member's ability to properly make a decision whether to opt out or not. An example of what I'm talking about is found in Much and ISG Management, which is a class action which alleges that the Telstra contractor, ISG Management, violated the Fair Work Act by entering into subcontracting arrangements with technicians who were or ought to have been employees entitled to benefits such as annual leave and superannuation. An opt-out notice went out on that case, but Justice Bromberg 
found that some news articles which had been published in the Herald Sun, Daily Mail and the Australian may have given group members in the class action the wrong impression that they would be exposed to a cross-claim if they failed to opt out. His Honour ordered that a further notice be circulated as soon as possible by email to group members, including those who may have already opted out, to correct the false impression given by those articles. His Honour was very keen to protect the integrity of the opt-out process. It's an interesting take on what can amount to impacting on the opt-out notice, particularly as the information came from a third party. Even so, once again, we see an example of the flexibility that the court has and exercises. The court looks at the practicalities of the situation and how group members may actually be affected, as opposed to any hard and fast rules as to how such impact may have come into existence. There are two final aspects. The first concerns how an opt-out notice is brought to the attention of a group member. I don't think I need to say much about this. It's all a matter of flexibility and common sense. Traditionally, these things were done uh, by advertisements in newspapers, but we've moved far beyond that although newspapers should not be excluded as a means for advertising the existence of an opt-out notice. The advertisement document does not need to contain the opt-out notice. It may point to where the opt-out notice can be found. You'll have seen from the order made by Murphy J in the stolen wages class action that opt-out notices can be advertised in quite an imaginative way. In that case, there were public meetings. And a common way that an opt-out notice was brought to the attention of group members was through the public meetings. TV advertisements should also not be ignored, but they are very expensive. And costs should be weighed against gain. I don't want to draw the analogy too far, but it's a matter of horses for courses. I finally want to deal with what happens if you're late in opting out. An opt-out notice requires a group member to opt out by a certain date. But what happens if a group member wishes to opt out after that date? The answer to this harks back to something I raised earlier about a group member deciding to opt out in circumstances where they mightn't know all the facts. Certainly, at least until judgment is made, a group member can apply to the court to opt out, even if the expiry date has passed. It may be possible for them to do this after a judgment has been made, but that's a question for another day. For an application to opt out after the expiry of the time to be successful, there would need to be a reason, and that reason would need to be provided to the court. If, for example, a group member says that because of certain things that have happened in the development of the case, more information has come to light, which makes them change their mind, or if that information had been known at the appropriate time, it meant that they would have opted out then, they may be matters that a court will take into account. There is real importance in keeping the integrity of the opt-out process. 
This is because a respondent will understand who is to be bound by any determination and an applicant will be able to determine how any settlement is to be distributed. Any material variation with regard to what constitutes group members can have a disproportionate impact on a settlement or determination of a matter. I'm concerned I've really over-egged the importance of opt-out notices a little. They are important. They do constitute a linchpin around which the class action system operates. However, although they're a cog in the wheel and a significant cog, they are not the only cog. Next week, I will move away from opt-out notices, but remain with the theme of protecting group members. In doing this, I want to look at settlements and in particular, the appointment of a contradictor. Remember that documentation relating to this podcast can be found on the webpage www.aclasshalfpodcast.com. I hope you'll join me next time.